So I think one of the things that's striking about the Bible, in fact, one of the reasons we know it's true is the fact that the Bible gives us such an honest portrayal of the leaders and the people who should have been the heroes of Israel. It tells us the unvarnished truth of how corrupt and how flawed and and incompetent so many of the people who should have been the heroes were. And we saw that even with Solomon, who was one of the heroes. You see that in the life of David. If you read the story of his life, the great hero and founder, and, and you really see it with everybody, with Abraham, with Moses, name a Bible hero. And if you actually read their story in the adult Bible, you realize they're, they're not that heroic. So... On the one hand, it's kind of confusing, I think, as it makes you wonder, where are the heroes in this world? It seems like everybody is just such an incompetent mess. But then on the other hand, it's a little bit encouraging, because when I see the incompetent messes that I make of my own life, I say, well, I guess I'm just like the kings of Israel in a way. So, uh, but we've come to Rehoboam, and the thing about Rehoboam is there's really nothing, nothing he did that's good at all. I remember David, we know David because he killed Goliath. We know David because he was a great war hero. We know David because he wrote the book of Psalms and, he, and for all his flaws he had a real heart for God and desired to serve God. So David was great in his way. And then Solomon came along and Solomon was, was the great builder. He built the temple, King Solomon's temple, which was one of the greatest, greatest buildings in uh, in the, in the world in that day. He, he was a great leader. Israel prospered under his reign by and large because of all he was able to do. Um, and he, he had his flaws as well, but, the, but then there came along Rehoboam. And Rehoboam had nothing to do. He inherited the wealth, he inherited the power, he inherited the position, and he was just kind of hanging out with his buddies, saying, well, what, what should we do next? And uh, so he grew up in Solomon's palace, and, and you know, talked about Solomon last week. Solomon had 700 wives and stuff, so he probably didn't pay too much attention to his sons. He had a lot, a lot of issues to uh, deal with. So, so he, he was, but as a, a son growing up in this palace, being groomed to be the king, he was probably isolated from normal life. You, you can imagine he never really struggled. He was always indulged. But the interesting thing you see is, with all of his indulgence with all of all of the gifts they gave him with all he had handed to him he wasn't really satisfied with that and far from being generous and gracious because of all he had been given he was cruel and selfish to those around him and as, as a consequence of that if you're familiar with the story at all the consequences of his cruelty and his selfishness were that it actually broke the nation and and if you keep reading the story of Rehoboam, what happened is it resulted in kind of an uprising or, and a rebellion, and, uh, and, and the nation of Israel was split in two. Israel on the northern part, which was ten of the tribes, and then Judah and the tribe of Levite stayed in the southern part with the, nation, uh, or with the city of Jerusalem. And so he was the king who precipitated that division of the nation, which lasted really throughout the biblical history of, uh, of Israel. So, so again, what, what the story of all the kings shows us is that our destiny is defined by the kings that we have. And the nation of Israel was always largely shaped 
by the quality and the character and the successes and the failures of the kings that they had. Just as I think in our life, ultimately, our lives are going to be shaped by those who we give power over us and those who we surrender to and those who we allow to rule over us. So first of all, I want to look at three characteristics of Rehoboam that made him such a, a pathetic, terrible king. And the first is his absolute foolishness. Here he is, he's just become king. He's just sitting there getting used to the palace, getting used to sitting in his father's throne and all that kind of thing. And Jeroboam comes representing the people. He was sort of the liaison between the, the vast majority of the people and the king. And, and so Jeroboam was a, a plain-spoken guy, and he was, he was someone who was, who was really a leader. He was Jeroboam, if you know the story, he became the king of the northern kingdom when the rebellion happened. But here he comes, not wanting to rebel, wanting to reconcile. And he says to, to the king, please give us a tax cut. Please stop making our kids work for free. Please cut back on the, all these infrastructure you have, projects you have. You know, you have enough palaces already. You have enough vacation homes. You have enough villas. So if you'll just cut back, we'll be glad to serve you. We'll be glad to follow you. We'll be glad to stay in your kingdom. And so, and, and you know, Solomon had done, Solomon's whole career had been building project after building project. So he's just saying, give us a tax cut. Give us a little break, and everything will be fine. And so Rehoboam says, let me think about that. And so first he goes to the elders, the people who have been his father's advisors, and they say, well, give these people their tax cut. Give these people their break. Slow down your schedule of uh, building palaces for yourself and your people, and, and they'll serve you forever. And he says, okay, well, that, that's uh, an interesting position. Then he goes to all the young princes. And I can just imagine this meeting. I mean, it was definitely around one of the pools and one of the palaces, and you can kind of picture it, or maybe you shouldn't picture it, but, but uh, all, all of the princes and all of their people are hanging around, and, and you know, the music's bumping, and the, the drinks are flowing, and, and Rehoboam says, what do you people think? They've asked me to cut down on the revenues and cut taxes for them. Should we cut taxes or not? And the guys are like, are you kidding me? Tell them. Tell them my, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. I mean, who comes up with lines like that? <laughs> Tell them, well, my father scourged you with whips, but we're going to scourge you with scorpions. And so, you know, I mean, these guys were definitely drunk as they're coming up with these lines. But, but sometimes, under those circumstances, bad ideas become good ideas. And so Rehoboam went with, went with that agenda. And it says... Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men, and he said, my father made your yoke heavier, I will make it even heavier. He listened to his idiot buddies, and so he had only himself to blame for the disintegration of his kingdom. So first he was foolish. The second thing is he was entitled. You know, David was great because he was the great conqueror. He killed Goliath. He did all kinds of great things. Solomon was a great builder, a wise leader, and, and Israel prospered greatly under his, his reign. Rehoboam just fell into all this. He did nothing. He was just born at the right place at the right time. They come to him asking for a break, and he just comes up with these lines like, well, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. You know, he says, my father laid a heavy yoke on you. I'll, 
lay a heavier yoke on you. He had done nothing, he had accomplished nothing, he had achieved nothing, but he just wanted more. He was the richest man in the world in that day, and he just said, well, I want to be actually richer. And so, to me, Rehoboam's a, a picture of the danger of an entitlement mentality. When, when you've been given everything, all, sometimes all you have is never enough and you only want more. You know, he's the richest man in the world and yet he wants more. He has all this stuff, but he's got nothing to share. And, you know, what I learned from that is that, you know, gratitude and generosity and contentment don't come naturally to any of us. We're not naturally going to be, well, well, boy, I'm, I'm really so blessed. What can I do for other people? Or I'm really so blessed, I just need to be more thankful to God. Those are learned characteristics. We don't learn gratitude. We don't learn generosity. We don't learn, we, we don't even learn responsibility. Um, you know, if Rehoboam had just been willing to cut taxes, to cut his budget, to slow down on his building programs, to cut down on the number of vacation villas he had on the Mediterranean, he would have still been the richest man in the world in his day. But he said, no, I want what I want. I'm going to demand what I'm going to demand. And, you know, I think when we fall into that way of thinking, we're never going to be satisfied. So Rehoboam was entitled, Rehoboam was demanding. And the third thing I want you to see is that he was detached and cruel. He had no sense of solidarity with the people, no understanding of what their lives might have been like. He couldn't relate to the people who worked and, and labored and paid taxes in order to make his kingdom and his, his life of luxury possible. Uh, you know... He had, he had no concept of what it was like not to be a person of privilege. He saw them, in a sense, he saw them as something less than him. And uh, he saw the people in his nation, you could say, as just another natural resource that he could exploit. I mean, he says to him, my father scourged you with whips and I will scourge you with scorpions. Uh, so he forgot or he, he didn't have the ability to see people as people. And so, you know, when you, when you look at Rehoboam, I, I think to me, at one level, it's hard to believe that someone could be this stupid, could be this greedy, could be this demanding, and, and this self-indulgent. You know, it's, a, it's you, you say to yourself, what an absolute jerk to treat people this way. What, what kind of a person responds this way, and is, is this detached from the people around him? You know, I was thinking about that, and I was like, well, I really don't like this guy, Rehoboam. But then I, I, I realized something, and I, I think this is true. Often when we come across people we don't like and people who we, we enjoy looking down on, really what we don't like about them is, is that they get to do the stuff that we want to do but don't dare do. Have you noticed that? That sometimes it's like, well, well, I wish I could flaunt my wealth the way that person does, but I don't have it, so I can't flaunt it, and so I can just resent them. You know, or I wish I could treat people that way, but no one would tolerate me treating, treating them that way the way other people do. And so sometimes, you know, the things that we find most reprehensible about other people are just the things that are in us as well. They're just suppressed because we don't have the kind of power and prestige and position and wealth that other people often have that enable them to indulge some of their 
worst instincts. Uh, you know, and, and so Rehoboam, in a sense, the things that are unlikable about a guy like Rehoboam are, are, I think in me, I think maybe in all of us to an extent, it's just that, that circumstances haven't yet enabled us to indulge ourselves in the same way. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us, the, the only reason, the, the, the main reason we're good people and nice people is because no one would tolerate us being anything other than good or nice. And we don't really believe we could get away with stuff. And so we don't dare. So we, we resign ourselves to being nice. We resign ourselves to being good. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the way, that's the way we, we function in. So, so Rehoboam, in a sense, you know, we're all as entitled, we're all as detached and cruel, we're all as ungrateful and as selfish and hard to satisfy as he was. And he's just a picture of what we might be if the limits were taken off. So, now as we go through the book of Kings, one of the things you realize is that the history of Israel, the destiny of Israel was always defined by, by, by the quality of the, these kings. And this, a disastrous king like Rehoboam led to disaster for the, the kingdom. Rehoboam's greed and cruelty, as the story goes, led to an uprising, almost a civil war and the division of the nation uh, that, that persisted through, throughout the history of, of Israel. And uh, so the irony is this, and it, you know, as if you read the end, of, the end of the story of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the people succeed, secede from, from the nation of Israel, the northern kingdoms, 10 out of 12 of them secede and form the northern kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam's chased back to Jerusalem, and now all of a sudden he's a much more humbled king. He's a much more poor king. He's a much more disempowered king because he overshot and he demanded too much. He ended up losing almost everything. And uh, so, so as I said, you go through the book of Kings, and one of the things that strikes you is, is, you know, some kings are better than others, but they're all flawed. None of them are perfect. None of them are, are actually really competent. And it, what, what the book of Kings is showing us, what the book of Kings is communicating to you and to me, is that the people of God need a better king. They need a perfect king. They need a king who won't be selfish and entitled and foolish like Rehoboam. There's another king that has to come for the people of Israel to become everything that God wants them to be. And the rest of the story is that king has come, and his name is Jesus. And the whole Old Testament and all the stories of all the kings, they point to Jesus. And there's two ways the kings of Israel point to Jesus. One is we see the successes of the king. We see the wisdom of Solomon, and it shows us a picture of the wisdom of Jesus. We see the courage of David when he defeats Goliath, and it's a picture of the courage of Jesus as he defeats sin and death and Satan himself. But then there's another way, the way of negation via negativa, where the kings show us exactly the opposite of what Jesus is, and the failures of the kings and the incompetence of the kings points us to 
the perfection we need in Jesus. And that's the usefulness of the pathetic story of Rehoboam to us. Rehoboam was utterly foolish. He didn't listen to good advice. He didn't understand the, the dynamics amongst his people and that led to the disintegration of his nation. And what strikes us about Jesus is his wisdom. Jesus understood, you know, the elders of, of Rehoboam understood the pragmatic reality that if you give these people a break, if you cut their taxes, if you lighten their load, they'll serve you forever. Jesus understood that wisdom at an even deeper level because what Jesus understood is that the way up is down that it's it's because Jesus was very God of very gods and he became one of us and was born not a king but born a carpenter Jesus in Matthew 23:11 puts it this way the wisdom of God, the reverse wisdom of the gospel, the reverse wisdom of life is this. The greatest among you will be your servant. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the wisdom of Jesus. That's the wisdom of Jesus' life. That's the wisdom, I mean, Rehoboam's life is a illustration of this dynamic as well. The deeper wisdom is that God exalts those who humble themselves. And Jesus himself is the exemplar of that because no one was ever greater. No one ever humbled themselves more profoundly. And as a result, no one was ever exalted more perfectly when he conquered death and ascended back to heaven for us. So that's the deeper wisdom of God. But the other thing we have, we see in Jesus, is the compassion of Christ. You know, Rehoboam's almost sociopathic in his inability to relate to people, to, to, to say to these people who come to you, well, my father scourged you with whips, but I will scourge you with scorpions. You know, to say, well, my father laid on you a heavy yoke, but I'm just going to make it even heavier. Jesus invites us to him, but with a different invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites you and me to bring our burdens to him, and he promises that he himself will take those burdens on himself. You know, that Jesus, the King Jesus is, is a king who, not a king who burdens us, but a king who removes our burdens, who releases our burdens. In fact, who allowed himself to be crushed by our burdens so that we could experience true freedom and true hope. He's the king of compassion, who you're looking for, who you're waiting for and who you need. And the third thing that's profound about Jesus and amazing about Jesus is his willingness to identify with us. I mean, here's King Rehoboam who had lived as a prince in Solomon's palace, had been groomed to be, be king from an early age, had probably never done any manual labor, had never had to fight, had never had to struggle. Everything was always 
handed to him. He didn't know what it was like to spend a day laying bricks or, or digging holes or anything like that. He just knew that he'd, he'd draw a plan and, and his servants and his slaves would make it happen. And so he couldn't relate at all to regular people who worked with their hands, to regular people who were struggling to provide for their family, who had difficult lives and who suffered under the burdens of his plans. And uh, that's the way most kings were in, in that day, in, in 800 BC. They saw the people under their charge mostly as resources to be exploited. And the question was just, what's the most work we can get out of these people? What's the most labor we can take from these people? And, uh, and, and that, that's, the way, that's the way kings treated people and without, without really thinking about the human cost of the demands that they made. But Jesus is different. Rather than detach himself from us, he became one of us. And he comes down to earth to redeem you and me. He became one of us so that he could bear our pain, so that he could bear our burdens and rescue us if we'll look to him. Isaiah 53 anticipates this and he says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. By his wounds we are healed. By, by his stripes we are healed because he was lashed we can be made whole. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The history of your life is going to be defined by the things you allow to rule over you, by the kings you put in authority over you. And it might be your ambition, it might be a particular relationship, it might be a desire, it might be an addiction, it might be a fear that's controlling you. And the invitation of the gospel is to make this Jesus, the wise Jesus, the compassionate Jesus, the Jesus who became one of you and even bore your burdens and bore your pain. Make him your king and you'll share in his glory and he will share in his victory. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for our perfect King Jesus. Forgive us for the times when we prefer other kings and give other kings authority and rule and power over us. Help us to become a people who rest in him, who believe in him, who trust in him, and recognize that he alone is the all-powerful king. He is the good king. He is the wise king. He is the compassionate and gracious king that we might carry all our burdens to him and surrender our lives to him and experience and share in his ultimate victory. We pray in his name. Amen.